Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week we're going over UFC Vegas 16, headlined by Jack Hermanson and Marvin Vittori. This fight has been hit with some uh, injuries, especially in the main event. You know, Jack Hermanson initially supposed to fight Darren Till. Darren Till drops out, in steps Kevin Holland. Kevin Holland drops out, in steps Marvin Vittori, which is a solid matchup for sure. I'm really looking forward to this one. Uh, both guys deserve this spotlight, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, a big one here would definitely set them up to to really be in a title contention for uh, the middleweight division. Other good spots on this card too. I'm I'm really looking forward to this. Ilya Taporia versus Damon Jackson. That is a fucking fight. I cannot wait for that one. Um Movzar Evluev, you guys know I'm really high on that kid. He's coming in to fight the always entertaining Nate the Train Landwehr. Gabriel Benitez versus Justin Janes is a good fight. Jose Quinones versus Luis Smoka. We were supposed to get that a couple weeks ago. Smoka pulls out due to a bad weight cut. Now here he is, hoping to make that weight once again. Uh, but that should be a good fight. Jamal Hill versus OSP is a great fight in my opinion too. Cody Durden versus Jimmy Flick. Holy crap, that's a good fight. <laughs> I can't wait for that one, too. Uh, even De La Rosa versus Taylor Santos. I think that's a great fight. And then we obviously have the ghost of Jay Collier fighting Gian Vellante, but I definitely have some really good takes for that fight that I can't wait for you guys to hear once you guys get to that. But before we get to that, let's do uh, the, the quick betting recap of the last event, which was UFC Vegas 15. Very, very light card for me, but we hit on both of the plays. So let's go with the dog of the night play first. I had one unit at plus 150 on Suma to win via KO. That comes to fruition within a minute. Goes out there and absolutely starts Malcolm Gordon. So that hits for plus 1.5 units. And then the lock of the night play was in the Coleman event. We had four units on Miguel Baeza at minus 150. That hits for a plus 2.67 units. He looked phenomenal in that fight. Not even one minute where I doubted that pick. There wasn't even one successful moment for Takashi Sato in that fight either. Uh, that's what a lock of the night play looks like. And shout out to everybody that hit that plus 900 sub prop that I was uh, touting out there for you guys. Didn't make it an official pick, but it was definitely something that I was banging the drum on uh, throughout fight week. So to shout out to anybody who hit that. Shout out to anybody that got it in the plus 1200 range too immense amount of value i'm hoping that i can find something like that more often on these cards but uh yeah when something's uh, not obvious but like pretty pressing like that i'll do my best to bring it to your attention all right so we do end that uh event plus 4.17 units uh for an 83 percent roi back on the winning track after two losing events but this is what i'm about dude this is i know when i got my good reads and i'm gonna hammer those things uh and that's exactly what I did last week. I'm hoping to do the same this week. We got three events left in 2020. Hoping to end the year on a bang. Um, you know, on a four fight, four event winning streak would be great. Take a three week hiatus. You know, unwind and just get back to it. So I'm, uh, yeah, really very much looking forward to that. Uh, as always, going to plug the Patreon for you guys. If you guys don't already know, the Patreon is five bucks a month. You guys get all these breakdowns that you're about to see earlier than everybody else. Um, you guys get all the free picks, 
uh, sorry, you get all the picks as soon as I make them. You guys don't have to wait till Friday like the public does. And then even when I do go on my three event winning streak and I do charge the public, you guys get access to those bets as well, all for five bucks a month. Or if you want to be a little bit more generous, there's a 10 bucks a month tier, but there's nothing special on that except you being a little bit more of a generous individual. So uh, shout out to anybody on the Patreon. And lastly, there's the best bets and props article that I drop every Friday as well, too, that helps you guys and pinpoints the best bets and props for every single fight on that card. I'm looking at a bunch more content on there. Uh, I'm getting closer and closer to leaving that goddamn 9 to 5. And once I do, I'm going to be putting a little bit more work into that Patreon to add some more content, add some more value there. But there's already a ton of value for 5 bucks a month uh, on that Patreon. So shout out to everybody on there. We're at 172 the last time I checked. Trying to crack that 200 mark before the end of the year. Um, but yeah, you guys are absolutely killing it. And I'm beyond thankful for all the support that I got on there. But if you want to join the team, also, last thing I'll talk about it, we have a great Discord uh, group as well where we just talk the fights uh, during the fights. We try to spot live biting opportunities. Um, we got a couple people on there on the Community Picks channel that are giving bets for, you know, football, uh, Korean baseball, pretty much everything. We got a great community on there. And we would love to have you join that community as well so uh that's another perk for the patreon the link for the patreon is in the description below so make sure you guys check that out uh and uh yeah help support your boy i'm so close to making this dream become a reality in terms of doing this thing full time and uh i have nobody but you guys to thank for the support and all the help as always all right that is about it uh also last thing i do want to plug uh, Thursday night, so if you guys missed it last time, Thursday, me and Cody are doing a show on Odds HQ on their YouTube channel called Propping You Up, where we're giving you guys the best props for every single fight, um, and it's a show kind of in the works that we're, we're working to continuously make it better, but that first show that we did, amazing turnout. I believe we had 35 live viewers. That's where we peaked at. But uh, in total views, I think we hit the 4,000 mark, which is absolutely insane, especially for a pilot episode, especially for an episode that was on Thanksgiving for the U.S. people. So shout out to everybody that neglected their family that night to come join you guys uh, over at Odds HQ. <clears throat> All right. And then obviously Friday, we have the final weigh-in stream at 9 p.m. Eastern uh, that I'm always on. But you guys already know that. It's been a couple weeks now. You guys have come out pretty much every week, showed your boy love. So shout out to you guys for that. All right. Let's get into the breakdowns. That's what you guys are here for. And uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to this card. Got a ton of great takes. Um, also, I do want to say one last thing. I do have my lock of the night play already placed. That's available on the Patreon. Hit the Patreon. You guys can get it there. Unless you guys want to wait till Friday when the line is probably going to be much, much worse, which I think it will be. So, um, yeah. All right, let's get into the breakdowns. Here we go. Luis Smolka versus Jose Quinones. We got minus 140 on Smolka and plus 120 on El So let's start off with Luis Smolka, who is coming off a loss to Casey Kenny back in May. Uh, I believe that was the night I should have gone out there and picked Casey Kenny as my lock and then I play. However, I got a little bit too cute and uh, tried to play something else. You know what? Just for the fun of this podcast, let's go back and see what I played as my lock and then I play for that card. Oh yeah, it was the under two and a half for Billy Quarantillo versus Spike Carlisle. Uh, yeah, those guys went to war. Plenty of finishing opportunities, but nothing transpired. So we ended up getting an L there. But uh, Casey Kenny went out there and did absolute work on uh, Louis Smoko, who was a plus 225 underdog there. So I probably should have taken the juice at minus 285, uh, knowing what Casey Kenny was capable of. 
um, you know, I didn't waste too much time uh, cashing on Casey Cunning afterwards against Haile Yelatang. Uh, but again, this is about Luis Smoka. So let's get over to him. In that fight, I was kind of impressed with what we saw. But if you guys actually even go back to the Ryan McDonald fight, that's where you really start to see the evolution of Louis, Louis Smoka's game. Um, uh, you know, in the Machnell and Sumadarji fights, you saw him kind of just trying to struggle to to get the fight into the grappling realm because we know how good his jujitsu is and uh, how crafty and and successful he has been when he does implement his jujitsu. Obviously, we did see him get submitted by Matt Schnell, so maybe that made him go out there and kind of change up his plan and and start to approach fights differently. And the Casey Kenny fight wasn't going too bad for him. Uh, it was just a, a big shot from Casey Kenny with the counter uh, to really rock um, uh, Louis Smoka there and allowed him to, you know, get that position for the one arm guillotine choke. And uh, yeah, th- there wasn't much Louis Smoka could do in that situation after getting rocked. But leading up to that, like I said, he looked really good. He landed like 25 plus body shots within two and a half minutes or two minutes of uh, uh, of that fight with, with Kenny. Like it was very, very impressive. And then the Ryan McDonald fight, we saw him just absolutely battering the body of uh, Ryan McDonald. Not really even paying too much attention to the head, just waiting for the opportunity to, to, to switch from the body shots to the head shots. Um, I like to compare it to like what I want to be really cheap on uh, on on UFC three or UFC four, whatever it is. Just keep going to the body because more often than not, people just stri- strictly block to the head. They think that it's more damaging to get hit to the head than it is to the body. But you just rip the body, rip the body, rip the body, and wait for the hands to come down and then start bringing those shots up top. And I love that style from Smoka. Like if he's able to go out there and implement that, and then force opponents to go out there and shoot on him, maybe he could uh, counter with a perfectly timed guillotine or. Or, or sprawling on these guys and and uh, you know t- trying to reverse them when they try to initiate the grappling exchanges. Um, Kinones, we know what his style is uh, with jujitsu tattooed across his chest, but I haven't been overly impressed with his jujitsu game from what I've seen. Uh, his so his only win out of his last three was against a guy named Carlos Watson in a fight where Watson just seemed like a guy that was content with just being the slow plodding guy moving forward, looking for the big shots, whereas Kinones seemed a little bit more comfortable on the feet a lot of movement uh, a lot of in and out movement a lot of kicks as well too and uh, also the the size and reach disadvantage that Carlos Watson was in it was a lot for him to overcome there um, Alberto Quinones did a phenomenal job in terms of sticking and moving and getting out of the way of the big shots and there wasn't really a, any point in that fight where he was really hurt or in trouble he even hurt and dropped Carlos Watson in that first round and then in the next rounds he kind of just cruises I kind of understand why he decided to go that realm or that way just due to the amount of power that Hawachin had in his hands. But in Nath- against Nathaniel Wood and Sean O'Malley, who came with a little bit more of a diverse attack um, uh, in, this, in the striking realm, it, it kind of like stumbled and, and completely baffled uh, what Kanones was, uh, was able to do. Um, you know, he, he seemed like he was more caught up in seeing what his opponent was doing rather than implementing his own game just like he did in the Carlos Hawachin fight. Um, I expect him to to maybe dwindle a little bit toward uh, against Luis Smoka here in terms of uh, what Smoka is going to be bringing with the hands and and you know the redefined game that we're seeing from from Smoka on the feet. And then when it gets to the ground, I 
kind of lean Luis Mocha. Like, as much as people want to big up Jose Quinone's jiu-jitsu game just because he has a tattoo across his chest, doesn't mean the guy's immune to getting choked out. Like, he got choked out against Nathaniel Wood. He was getting close to getting choked out in uh, plenty of other fights, too. Um I'm not completely sold on Canonas here. Um, I think Luis Mocha is definitely in the spot. Um, at minus 140, though, I'm not 100% sure if I'd want to go out there and put money on, on Smoka. He did open up at a minus 175, and a ton of money has come in on Canonas to kind of get that line to to shrink. But if it continues to shrink, like if you give me minus 110, like a pick'em line here, I might have to put a little bit on Luis Mocha. Like, Again, I, I'm, I'm liking what I'm seeing from him, uh, his developments, especially in the striking game, and then just that style of just beating up the body, not really giving too much worries about the face, uh, and then waiting for the face to open up to, to really rip those shots up there and and, and and take advantage. And I feel like Canones is a guy that can kind of get lulled into that game. You know, Smoka isn't as slow and plodding as a Huachin, so he does move a little bit more. He does push the pressure, and I feel like he'll do a good job of kind of like corralling Canones against the cage or, uh, you know, into those those corners and ripping shots to the body and then eventually switching it up and going to the head. So, um, yeah, I like Smoka here. Uh, I think he can get it done. Um, but am I going to go out there and pay minus 140 on Smoka? Probably not. Give me a pick em line or give me minus 115, minus 120 or something, and I'd be a little bit more intrigued. But there's so much else on this card that I'm intrigued by uh, that I don't know if I'm even going to bother risking the money on Smoker. But he should definitely win this fight, especially with this newer version that we've been seeing of him. So uh, I'm going to go out there, pick Louis Smoker. I wouldn't even be surprised if he gets a finish too, maybe second round, third round submission, or even KO once the or or a club and sub. I'm not 100 percent sure yet, but uh, I wouldn't mind seeing what the inside the distance line for Louis Smoka looks like here. Um, if we can get better than like plus 200 or something, that's probably worth the play in itself. But uh, yeah, I do like Louis Smoka to win this fight. I'll say first or second round club and sub, or even just a uh, you know submission straight out. So uh, final prediction: Louis Smoka via finish in the first or second round. Gabriel Benitez versus Justin James. We got minus 185 for Gabriel, and we got plus 160 on James. Let's start off with the Qatar hero, uh, Justin James. So I did cash on him la- or against him last time around when he fought Gavin Tucker back in August, um, and that was a relatively quick turnaround for him after making his UFC debut after knocking out Frank Camacho within 41 seconds. And outside of a first-round knockout, I don't really know what he brings to the table. You know, he seems to be a generic power puncher that likes to throw winging shots and not much else. Um, Gas Tank is a little bit suspect too, um, but uh, I kind of chalk it up to him trying to finish Gavin Tucker in that first round after dropping him with a beautiful uppercut. Um, It did drop him. um, It did follow up with a couple shots and uh, Tucker did a good job of kind of stifling the, the, you know, the damage that was coming his way. However, uh, you know, Tucker managed to survive that. And then in the second round, really start to take over, really start to dig his kicks into the body of Justin Janes and really start to, you know, suck the wind and the cardio out of Janes. So, uh, you know, it's a combination of, I think, a suspect gas tank from Justin Janes as well as the body work from Gavin Tucker, which eventually led to him rocking him in that second round and in the third round and then following up with the beautiful rear naked choke. Uh, beautiful win for Gavin Tucker there. I won't lie, had me sweating a little bit because the worst case scenario did come 
come to fruition in terms of Justin James knocking down Gavin Tucker in that first round. However, uh, you know, we saw the resiliency of Tucker to fight through that, you know, pretty much throw up a submission attempt right after getting dropped. So we saw that he was still somewhat in it. Uh, but that's pretty much Justin James' game, in my opinion. Like, I don't really see much else that he brings to the table. Once he fights a guy that has, um, you know, a much more technical game and more than just punches, uh, I think he falls into trouble. And this is a, you know, a perfect matchup for Gabriel Benitez to get back onto the winning track here. So last time he hit around, he took a short, uh, not a short notice fight, but a fight up at lightweight against Omar Morales, where he ate the biggest shots from Morales and was still sticking around, landing his own good shots and landing massive leg kicks in that fight too. That seems to be something very, very important in Benitez's game is establishing that leg kick. And he fights from a southpaw stance, so he's digging into the inner thigh of the lead leg of his opponents more often than not. Um... I like what we see from Gabriel Benitez, and it's weird to me to think that the guy's only 32 years old, considering that he's been in the UFC since Tough Latin America 1, which was way back in 2014. He didn't end up winning that show, but he did make it into the big stage, and since then, he's put up a, what, 2, 4, 5, 5 and 4 record within the UFC. Uh, his losses, Andre Feely, Enrique Barzola, uh, Sodiq Yusuf and Omar Morales so not really the worst losses in the world there and the fact that he was able to go out there and sling leather for three rounds with a guy a weight class higher and throws with a hell of you know very very bad intentions like Omar Morales gives me really good uh, feelings going into this fight against Justin James obviously the fight before that he got knocked out by Sodiq Yusuf who in my opinion is a much more technical striker and was waiting for the perfect opportunity to uh, counter Gabriel Benitez and land a perfect bomb of his own following up with some ground and pound of his own. However, I think the very limited path to victory for Justin James here makes this a really good spot for Gabriel Benitez. I think him chewing up the lead leg of Justin James and even bringing that uh, leg not just to the to the thigh, but to the calf and also to the to the body as well of Justin James. I think if he works on that, sticks on the outside as much as possible, tries to do his best to avoid the big shots of Justin James, I think he'll have a really good shot of... Uh, uh, of outpointing and possibly finish, finishing James late. I think this is a solid spot for another potential third-round finish uh, prop, something that I like to hit quite often. Um, and I think this is a perfect spot given the questionable cardio of Justin James. Now, a lot of people want to say that uh, Justin James has the path to victory of taking this fight to the ground. However, I think he's going to gas himself out too much if he goes out there and tries to do that round after round. I believe by round and a half in... We'll see the speed and the cardio advantage of Gabriel Benitez really start to take over. And I think he I think he's a really good spot here. Like I, I really like him in this spot. Um in terms of metrics, we're talking five, seven, sixty, seven and a half inch reach for Justin James. And we got a five eight uh, 71 inch reach for Gabriel Benitez so a slight reach advantage a one inch height advantage uh, for Benitez and a much more technical and slicker striker at least in my opinion for Gabriel Benitez here so I love him in this spot you know I think he had well when you have guys that have such narrow paths of victory like Justin James the other spot is almost an auto bet um, you know we did see the line uh, open in Justin James's favor which is absolute insanity minus 155 is what what the line opened up for justin james and then uh 
yeah, we've seen steady buyback now and Gabriel Benitez all the way up to minus 185. I wish I did tape this a little bit sooner so I could get that better line. However, I could even price Benitez all the way up to minus 250 in this spot. Um, I give him a 75% chance of winning, which even says minus 300. But, uh, you know, I'm hoping that people will buy into the knockout power of Justin James and see, okay, we saw Benitez knocked out only two fights ago. But what they're overlooking is, you know, Sadiq Yusuf, much, much more technical striker than Justin James and will do a better or won't do as good of a job as Sadiq did to to find that opening. So I like Benitez here. I think he's a, a really good spot, a really, really uh, confident spot on my end. Uh, and I'll be looking to play him very, very shortly. So, uh, yeah, I do like Gabriel Benitez to win this fight probably by third round TKO. I think his leg kicks are going to add up, which really start to slow down uh, Janes. And then we see him follow up with some punches and get that finish in the third round. So once again, I'm going with Gabriel Benitez to win this fight via KO in the third round. Ilya Teporia versus Damon Jackson. We got minus 230. On the Spaniard slash Georgian Ilya Teporia and plus 190 on Damon Jackson. Damon the Leech Jackson, I believe it is. And the over-unders just recently dropped. So we currently got it pretty much at a pick'em line. Uh, slight, uh, you know, minus money, uh, underdog money, I should say, on the under two and a half year. But, uh, man, this, this fight is easily the one that I'm looking forward to the most. Like, the fighter I'm looking forward to the most on this card is Movzar Evluev. A lot of people know that I'm very, very high on that kid, hence his minus 500 line that he has. But in terms of a fight and how guys match up, this fight is by far taking the cake for me in terms of just knowing that it's going to be action-packed from from bell to bell. So let's start off with Damon Jackson, who came out uh, super short notice. Uh, Save Sayud did not mince his words at all after Damon Jackson was able to get that guillotine choke. But uh, you hear him yell out immediately, three days notice three days notice and uh yeah he made it known uh you know he he had a very tough first two rounds Mirsad Bektik was pretty much getting the better of him uh you know winning the scrambles having a bunch of submission attempts but never really locking anything up to the best of his ability then Damon Jackson you know finishes those second round strong landing a couple big elbows and then in that third round you could definitely tell that the cardio was catching up to Mirsad Bektik and you can definitely see it in his corner too when Faraz Zawabi is just like dude slow it the fuck down there's there's no rush here we got five minutes left slow down the pace and uh, you know maybe one or two takedowns will win this fight unfortunately for him uh when he when he goes for the takedown uh damon jackson locks up a sub um or, or a guillotine choke specifically i should say and you hear safe sahud in the background as well saying you know D don't go for it unless you go for you know, unless you 100 have it and not only did he have it he used that position to reverse it uh end up on top of bektich and just squeezes the hell out of that choke eventually gets the finish there a minute and 21 seconds into that third round and that cash huge for me too i was if a lot of people were with me at that time you guys know i cashed him uh as the underdog in that a heavy underdog in that fight and also the submission prop and the round three prop bang on read on my end and i was very very happy about that now here he matches up against uh in my opinion a much tougher opponent in Ilya Tapuria. Uh, we know what Jackson's game is. He wants to go out there and wants to get submission choke. He wants to get a finish ASAP. In terms of victories, he has 14 submission victories out of his 18 total victories. So he has only four other wins have come by anything other than a submission. Insane for this guy. He just, he, he is all action pretty much all the time. Uh, 
kind of surprised that the under two and a half is where it is. But once the limits open up, we'll see where uh, where that line lays and if there's any value left on it uh, once that line starts to settle out. But at the at the pick'em line. That line is absolutely absurd. I think people should be jumping on that, but we'll see what the public does to that line as the fight week goes on. Uh, you know, decent takedowns, but he he can be controlled. That's the issue here with Jackson, and I feel like Tupuria could have success in actually controlling him. Uh, you know, decent uh, striking, but he definitely uh, makes the most of his bread off of his submission game and getting guys to the ground and reversals and sweeps and all that type of stuff. He's very, very fun to watch for sure. Now, Tupuria, on the other hand, this is a guy that I've been high on for uh, a long time. You know, I mean, this going back to his fight against Brian Buland, June of 2018. That's a fight that was one of the like one of the only Cage Warriors fights where I actually ended up taping that. And luckily for me, I did end up, uh, you know, uh, getting on the Tuporia train. He closed as a bit of a favorite in that fight. I do want to see if I can pull that line up if Best Fight Odds has it for us. Yeah, he opened as a plus 100 uh, underdog and actually closed at plus 141. I, I don't remember the line that I got him at, but I do remember I did get him at plus money there. And I was more than happy about that. I mean, the only issue or the only question marks that we had going into that Bulan fight was questionable competition leading into that outside of the one uh, fight that he had in cage where he got a mounted guillotine three minutes into that first round. But... Make short work of Brian Bulan. Goes out there and gets an anaconda choke less than two minutes into that first round. And he really burst onto the scene there. Unfortunately, he hasn't been that active. Like between his UFC debut, which was October 10th of this year. Uh, and the fight before that was November of 2019, the year before. So, you know, it's uh, it's it's... It's good that he's getting his uh, dues in now. Like, this is only over two months after his use of Zalal fight. I'm assuming this was way more of a complete camp than his Zalal fight, considering that he took that Zalal fight on, on relatively short notice. Now he has maybe not three months, which is what normal fighters would like. But that fight was announced pretty quickly after uh, both guys got their hand raised. Uh, Damon Jackson won in September. Uh, Tuporio won in October. So yeah, they have a little bit more time to prepare for this. So I want to cut Taporio a little bit of slack in terms of the questionable cardio that we saw in that third round. We've seen from Damon Jackson. We know that Mirsad Bektik has uh, a questionable gas tank, and we saw him take advantage of that. Now, it, does Taporio's gas tank wane in those third round, in this third round as well? I'm expecting this fight to be just as high-paced as the Yusuf Zalal fight. So if he does have cardio issues and this fight does reach the third round, I believe we'll actually find out, uh, you know, how good his cardio is. Um, and, and Damon Jackson is the guy to to find that out against. If the, It's going to be a high-paced fight. There's going to be a bunch of scrambles. There's going to be a bunch of reversals. Uh, you know, both guys are going to be going for submission attempts. Both guys are going to be squeezing. So we'll find out how much Taporia really has in, you know, that 11th to 15th minute if we do see those. Personally, I don't think we end up seeing those. Personally, I do think that we see Tuporia land the takedowns, uh, and I think he has the more superior jiu-jitsu game here. Uh, you know, we did see Mirsad Bektic has, have a bunch of submission attempts on Damon Jackson, but just wasn't able to complete any of them. With Tuporia, I feel like he, sh he may be able to complete them against Jackson here. Again, I'll give him a little bit of a benefit of the doubt in his fight against Zalal since it was short notice, but we still saw, you know, a high, high-level jiu-jitsu game from him. And I feel like uh, he could complete one of those submission against, submissions against Jackson. Now, Jackson hasn't been finished via a submission since uh, 
his Hani Jason fight, which was a long, long time ago. I believe Hani Jason actually tested positive after that, but that was uh, May of 2015. So it's closing in on five and a half years since we've seen Damon Jackson actually submitted. But I think this is the first time we're seeing him fight somebody with the level of jiu-jitsu of Ilya Tapuria. So that's where things get a little bit hairy for Jackson. Uh, going into the research for this fight, I actually thought that there was going to be some value on Jackson. And I still believe that there is some slight value here on Jackson if that's the way you want to go. But I think you would be better off with going with uh, Jackson via sub as a good hedge here. Or even Jackson in the in round three if Toporia really does have cardio issues. However, for me, I think the line that I'm most interested in is the under two and a half. Um I don't really want to take my chances on betting Tupuria here. He should win. I think he snatches up a sub, whether it's in the first or second round. Um, but Damon Jackson could be a sneaky good play for anybody that that that's looking for an underdog here. Um, especially if this fight does get extended into that third round. We could definitely see Jackson capitalize on the questionable gas tank of Tupuria. We had we didn't. I'm not saying that Topuri is a fish out of water in that third round. Like we did see him still have success against Zalal, and we did, I believe, see him uh, finish the fight in full mount or at least on top of Zalal to show that he actually has that will and that perseverance. But I don't think that Zalal has that third round killer instinct like our guy Damon Jackson, who's always just fishing for a submission of some sort. So, man, this this fight is just so so entertaining, so interesting to break down and get into. But I think the ultimate prediction that I'm going to make here is Ilya Taporia to win this either in the first or second round via either ground and pound or submission. Um, but the play that I like the most is the under two and a half in case Taporia isn't able to get that finish and maybe Jackson end, ends up getting it. So, uh, yeah, I like uh, the under two and a half here, but my prediction is going to be Ilya Taporia either first or second round sub. Cody Durden versus Jimmy Flick. We got minus 165 on the Brick Flick, and we got plus 145 on Cody Durden. Now, this is a very, very fun fight to... Uh, it was fun to break down first and foremost, but it's also very fun in terms of what these guys could potentially bring to this fight. So minus 265 is what the line is for this fight to not go to decision, and it absolutely makes sense. Let's start off with Cody Durden, who's already had one fight in the UFC. He's gone to a draw pretty much with Chris Gutierrez. Uh, I believe he had a 10-8 first round where he pretty much got Gutierrez uh, down within 30 seconds, I believe, and then just rode out the entire fight. Uh, or that entire round, uh, looking for submissions, landing some good ground and pound, uh, but just wasn't able to get the the finish there. Chris Gutierrez, Chris Gutierrez did a good job in the last two rounds to go out there and keep this fight on the feet, albeit uh, he got, did get taken down in the last 45 seconds of the second round. But outside of that, he did a good job of keeping it on the feet and uh, kind of just picking apart Cody Durden from on top. And most people expected that to happen if this fight did stay on the feet. Uh, however, uh, I think there was a ton of value on Cody Durden at those crazy odds. I believe he was roughly around plus 230, plus 250 for that fight. Regardless, everybody's bets uh, gets voided as this fight ends up going to a draw. Um... But uh, yeah, that's pretty much his style. He likes to get the fight to the ground. You know what I mean, he he has the USA wrestling tattoo over his left shoulder, and uh, that usually means you know what I mean the guy has a pretty good uh, wrestling background. And uh, you got to say the same thing for Cody Durden here. Uh, striking looks like it could use a little bit of work, but he does definitely have power in his hands. Uh, likes to move forward pretty much at all times, but it's obvious that his game plan is more often than not to get the fight to the ground. He has good submissions. He has a ton of submission victories and a bunch of uh, ground and pound victories as well, too. Uh, he even has a slam victory on his uh, record, but then again, he was fighting a guy that was 0-1 that night. Um, 
I like what I see from the kid. I think he has a good amount of potential. Uh, he's 29 years old, so he really has to start to get it going in terms of like making a move towards the top. Obviously, he hasn't been defeated since, uh, what was that, March of 2018. So he's currently on a, what is that, two, four, six, seven fight winning streak, or at least eight fight unbeaten streak if you want to take this draw into consideration. But this is a tough fight in terms of being able to implement his game uh, without putting himself into danger. Now, I like to refer to these fights as like the, the Ben Askren and uh, Damian Maya fight, or at least that's the type of template we have for this fight. We have a strong wrestler. Going up against a guy that has a very diverse uh, set of skills when we talk about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You know, all you need to see is Jimmy Flick's last fight against Nate Smith, which was on the Contender Series, to know that this guy loves hunting for the choke. And that's more often than not uh, how he gets his fights done. He has a ton of victories by submission. Let me get you the actual number there. He has 13 victories by dis uh, submission out of his 15 fights. The other two went to a decision. Hasn't notched a knockout finish or a ground and pound finish. The guy's always hunting for the sub. Um, he does look slightly uncomfortable on the feet when the fight does, uh, you know, take place on the feet. Um, he did end up losing via punches to Chris Gutierrez as well as Ray Rodriguez, who are both in the UFC. Uh, but he's still able to go out there and like submit guys. Uh, last three fights, all submission victories. I like his style in terms of you know attacking submissions as often as he is. Now the question here is: Does Cody Durden have a good enough uh, submission defense to not get tapped here? He has gotten rear naked choked by Ryan Hollis way back in 2018, uh, but no one has really been close up until the, that point, or since then, I should say. Um, I wouldn't even be entirely surprised if this fight ends up taking place on the feet for the most part, and uh, I feel like I would have to trust Durden a little bit more on the feet. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is about Flick. Like he has this this way of always initiating the grappling exchanges, whether it's one way or another. Uh, fuck, this is a very tough fight. I'm definitely going to be passing it. The only thing I would recommend if anybody wants to take a play on this fight, and I know it's a little bit juicy, but that fight doesn't go to decision at minus two sixty five is very very intriguing. But uh, this is a very very tough fight to call. Um, fuck. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the I'm gonna go with Flick here though. I, I feel like he will be able to initiate the grappling in some way or another. Um, you know, Cody Durden obviously should have good takedown defense, uh, being from like a wrestling background, but all it takes from Jimmy Flick is a trip or a, or even hopping on an opponent's back or something like that. And this guy can definitely get his uh, jujitsu game going. Uh, again, the longer this fight stays on the feet, the more um I'd be questioning the jimmy flicks uh, ability to win this fight however i just expect with his his pressure and the way that he fights almost like a like i don't want to compare it to tony ferguson too much as uh, i don't want to spear in the face of uh tony ferguson but i think that flick has some potential to definitely go out there and get some victories he's 30 years old uh you know 15 and 5 record on a three fight winning streak Fuck, man. This is a very, very tough fight. I mean, it's definitely a tough uh, toss-up for me. Uh, you know, shout out to anybody that managed to get in on Cordy Durden uh, at that plus one, plus one seventy-ish line. He even got up to plus one eighty-five at a certain point. Uh, but you know, people are understanding the love on Cordy Durden. I get it too. I just don't feel comfortable betting on him in this spot. So I'll go with Jimmy Flick to win this fight by submission. I think he eventually locks up something on Cody. Uh, but it's it's a very, very tough fight. Um, 
very very entertaining fight i do think that we'll see a lot of scrambles uh we'll see some good uh, exchanges on the feet too but uh for, for the fans uh perspective i do hope we do see cody Dern um you know seek the takedowns just as he normally does uh unfortunately for him that kind of puts himself into more danger so i got i'm really interested to see how he approaches this if he does go the grappling route how good his submission defense is and if he's going to be able to keep jimmy flick uh you know off of him in terms of submission attempts for 15 minutes or even you know however long it takes him to potentially finish jimmy as well too so once again i'll go with jimmy flick to win by submission but very very sketchy fight here Jordan Levitt versus Matt Wyman. We got minus 390 on the Contender Series alum, Jordan Levitt, and plus 320 on the UFC vet, Matt Wyman. Let's start off with Matt Wyman, who uh, took roughly a five-year hiatus before coming back to the UFC last June, where he lost via ground and pound to an up-and-comer in Luis Pena. And then in his next fight, another up-and-comer in uh, December of 2019, so just about a year ago, uh, lost via decision to Joe Selecki. Now here he is once again fighting another up-and-comer in Jordan Levitt, who in my opinion isn't as good as the prior two fighters, but should still have the tools to be able to go out there and beat a guy like Matt Wyman, who, uh, who's 37 years old. Not surprised, I, I can definitely see that. But uh, yeah, it, it's tough to really back Matt Wyman nowadays. Um, you know, his takedown defense just doesn't seem that good. You got to give it to him for being able to kind of withstand what Joe Selecki was throwing at him. I know a lot of people had a lot of money on Joe Selecki to win inside the distance that night. But unfortunately for him, uh, you know, he wasn't able to get the finish. However, Selecki, Selecki did still get some heavy scorecards in his favor. Now, Jordan Levitt has some red flags for me. You know what I mean, I, even though he's 7-0 here, um, his fight from back in February is very very alarming his striking does not look good like the guy just doesn't seem to have the te- the proper mechanics to throw a strike his jabs just don't look good you know he throws pretty much just one shot every now and then but uh, it's pretty obvious that his game plan is to get the fight to the ground asap no matter how unorthodox it is to get the fight there you know whether it's him scooting on his butt or him just like flailing for a takedown he's looking to get it and luckily for him, it seems like Matt Wyman would be able to succumb to those types of takedowns. Now, the question really is, if Jordan Levitt's not able to secure a submission here against Wyman, Wyman could absolutely spend some time on top, land some good shots from on top, and kind of sway judges his way. Because Jordan Levitt is kind of like a, a Jillian Robertson in the fact that they go for submissions over position. They don't mind if they end up on their back uh, in hopes of searching and hunting for a submission. So that's a, a little bit of a red flag for me. Not not really a, a huge red flag, but uh, you know, if he once he starts finding a fighter that's able to, you know, withstand the submission attack of Jordan Levitt, he's going to deal, you know, with some pretty heavy strikes from on top and that's very very concerning once he fights guys that are you know that can that can withstand that type of jujitsu attack uh and and do their own damage from on top this kid's in a world of trouble luckily for him matt wyman's not that guy i don't think that matt wyman will be able to survive the the submission onslaught here from jordan levitt because jordan levitt you know say what you want about him and as much as i've kind of given him shit here he does a good job with reversals does a good job with throwing up submissions and does a good job with just staying active in the jujitsu realm um 
with that said, I'm not comfortable parlaying him in that minus 350, minus 400 range. I think a lot of people are just fading Matt Wyman here, and I kind of understand that, but I need a better price tag, especially for like a UFC a newcomer, uh, somebody that has shown weaknesses in their game, even though he's undefeated. There's definitely weaknesses in his game, especially when the fight is on the feet. But again, from what we've seen recently from Matt Wyman, it seems like an easy fight for Levitt to get this fight to the ground and pull off the submission. And that's kind of the way that I'm leaning here. I think he does secure a submission in that first or second round, uh, but definitely a guy I'd be looking to f- you know, fade next time around. So hopefully he goes out there and gets a kind of a high late real submission over Matt Wyman. So he's a little bit overvalued next time around. But this is a guy I'm definitely looking to fade next time. But uh, this fight's an all-in-all pass for me. But in terms of an actual prediction... I'll go with Jordan Levitt to win this fight via submission in the first or second round. Gian Vellante versus Jake Collier, and we got minus 220 on Gian Vellante and plus 180 on Jake Collier. Uh, fight doesn't go to decision is minus 230. That obviously makes sense, but fuck, I don't know which way to start here. Let's let's start off with uh, Gian Vellante, 17 and 12. Uh, what is he? Man, his, his last little stretch, so... He beat Saperbeg Safarov in December of 2016. And since then, he is 2-5. Two, 2-5. Two Sorry, he had a draw in a grappling competition against Chris Kamozi uh, back in June of 2019. But he's coming off a modified choke from the bottom, according to Tapology, to Maurice Green. It looked like uh, his um, sad attempt at an Ezekiel choke. But it was so weird because it was like from bottom from half guard and he just put up a like a, a kind of choke type of position uh against uh Gian Vellante and I think it was literally the exhaustion that Gian Vellante uh ended up tapping to we saw him absolutely gas going into that second round even more gas going into the third round however he was successful in landing on Maurice Green dropping him uh trying to finish him in that uh, that last little flurry that he had on the ground however Maurice Green does enough to keep moving, uh, avoid the big, big, big shots to, uh, to to get taken out of there, and then he locks up this choke, and uh, yeah, you see Gian Vellante to tap there, and if you guys have been watching me for a while, you guys know that I'm not the biggest fan of Gian Vellante, or, you know, I'm sure he's great as a person and all that, but I just mean in terms of uh, his fighting style and, and uh, how uncoachable he is. Yeah, I mean, uh, I love shouting out Key Trimple because that guy looks like an amazing coach. Like he, you know, just means nothing but the best. But every time he's in Gian Vellante's corner, it looks like he's going to be, uh, you know, losing li- uh, years off of his life just because he's just popping every brain cell in his forehead trying to uh, to get through to Gian Vellante. And you'd think after cornering him as long as he has, uh, he knows that Gian Vellante is just not going to listen to him. It's just hilarious. Like he's throwing them, uh, going into that third round, he's like, all right, you know, we need volume here. Uh, let's pitter-patter him. Let's, let's try to, you know, accumulate output and try to score this round in our favor. What does fucking Gian Vellante do? Go out there and throw bungalows. And even after the first couple of bungalows that he throws, you hear Keith in the background just pleading, Gian, relax, calm down, slow it down. And Gian's like, fuck it. I'm going to try to take out Marie's screen. God damn, it's probably the the funniest part of of just taping John Vellante fights is seeing Keith Trumbull just lose his shit but uh we know what John's about and now the it's pretty clear that he just does not give a fuck about his his fighting career 
put on the massive amount of weight that he was actually supposed to fight uh, Ben Rothwell at heavyweight back in April when COVID initially hit. Then he gets another two and a half months to prepare for Maurice Green and still comes in an absolute dog shit shape. Um, yeah, his cardio did not look on point. His punches seem slow. Um, the guy has a background in wrestling and just refuses to use it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's he's too far gone from his from his wrestling days at this point to truly uh, use it to a full effect. So I'm not really banking on him to go out there and out wrestle Jay Collier here. Now on the opposite side, we got Jay Collier who used to fight at 185 pounds, um, even 205. He's slowly been uh, getting higher and higher in his weight classes. Um, was it 185? Yeah, he was fighting at 185. Even uh, his first UFC fight, yeah, 185 pounds. But now he's at 205. He had taken off about three years, close to three years, between the Marcel Fortuna fight, which he won by decision, uh, and his uh, return against Tom Aspinall, where he got crushed in 45 seconds. Now, there's not too much to take from that 45 seconds that we do have of Jay Collier here at heavyweight, but it's obviously concerning that he came in at that 265 limit. A lot of people thought he'd probably come in around that 240 limit, but once we saw him at the weigh-ins and not even want to take his shirt off, you kind of suspected that he probably didn't come in the best shape. I feel like he's the type of guy that would take the kind of criticism that was thrown at him, uh, you know, going into that fight and kind of come back with a little bit of fire. Now, we might see him at a little bit better weight. I'm hoping that we see him at maybe a, even 250 would be nice. You know I mean, not the heavyweight limit. Don't make me think that you had to cut weight to make the heavyweight limit after you used to make 185 pounds back in the day. And uh, a lot of people, you know, they're, they're counting Jake Collier out, uh, especially after getting crushed in 45 seconds against Tom Aspinall. Now, I'm hoping that, um, you know, the, the little that we did see from Jake in that fight from Tom, you know, I wasn't super uh, let down. I wasn't super unimpressed with Jake. You know what I mean? The fact that he could still get his leg up there and throw a head kick, even though it didn't even land, but the fact that he was able to throw out there was impressive on my end. I was expecting to see a much slower and and uh, completely just dull Jake Collier. And I wasn't overly, you know, like we still saw him throwing in combinations, throwing leg kicks, and, and that was somewhat impressive from the little bit we saw of him. Now we need to be able to differentiate Tom Aspinall and Gian Vellante. I think a lot of people are baking that, or or the the Tom Aspinall fight is heavily baked into this fight against Gian Vellante because look, we saw Gian Vellante go three rounds against Maurice Green, and yeah, he tapped to exhaustion in that third round. But Jay Collier, he got knocked out in forty five seconds. Tom Aspinall is not Gian Vellante. They are on completely two different complete trajectories at this point in their careers. Tom Aspinall kind of light on his feet, throws some good hands, throws those hands with speed. Gian Vellante does not throw his hands with speed. He telegraphs his shots. He throws, you know, he wings his shots. He's not as crisp as Tom Aspinall on the feet. So we need to clear that out first and foremost. This is not going to be Gian Vellante going in there and just cracking Jay Collier once and Collier falling. I think people are truly overlooking the the durability of Jay Collier just because of that last fight. And I think he still has some durability left in him. Like, I still think he'd be able to take those early shots from Gian Vellante. And if this fight does go later, I kind of trust Collier to have slightly better cardio than what we've seen from Gian Vellante in the past. You know, we still see Collier, like I said, we saw him throwing in combinations. He's not just going out there trying to look for that one-hitter quitter. You know what I mean? That's what Gian Vellante does. So I like Jay Collier here. Call me crazy, 
but I would rather pay the plus 180, possibly even plus 200 that I think that we're going to get on Collier, uh, you know, once we get closer into the fight week and closer to the fight, I think more people are going to go out there and, and fade Collier. So I'm more than happy to pull the trigger at plus 200. If I see plus 200 at any point, I'm going to pull that trigger on Jake Collier, and I don't care what anybody says. If you're giving me Jake Collier to fade Gian Vellante, um, and even in Gian Vellante in this type of shape, I'm fucking taking that every single day. I don't give a shit. Um, and even let's, let's put it this way, even when both fighters were in their peak conditioning and when Jake Collier was at 185 pounds and Jayon Vellante was fighting at 205, both of them on their best days, I'm still taking Jake Collier. He shows a much better overall game. Uh, he shows good top control as well too. So even if he goes out there and takes Jayon Vellante down, I could see him controlling Vellante from on top. That's not out of the realm of possibility. Why this line is as wide as, as it is, beyond me like when this fight got announced i'm like ah it's gonna be a pass this will probably be a pick em anyway you know what i mean like i don't know how people can have utmost confidence on either side here however this line for some goddamn reason continues to trend in G gian volante's way god damn it even opened up at minus 240 for gian volante which is absolutely hilarious and a half good lord uh, Jay Collier was uh, plus 190 for a little bit. But uh, yeah, I think we're still going to see plus 200 on Jay Collier. And I'm going to be all over that. Again, talk all the shit you guys want in the comments. I don't care. This fight is is much closer to a 50-50 than a you know, minus 220 for Gian Vellante. Absolutely absurd. Absurd, absurd, absurd. I'm, uh, I still think that Jay Collier could give us a solid performance. Um, I, again, I'm kind of hoping that he comes in at that that 250-ish at worst range. Um, and again, even if he comes in at 265, I still think he could put up way better of a fight than a plus 180 or a plus 200 would indicate. So I'm, I'm going with Collier here. I think he either gets it done late or he wins a decision, but I'm liking Collier. Give me that money all day. John Vellante is not trustworthy uh, north of this price. If you if you got him in the minus one ten, minus one fifty, not even minus one fifty, like this should truly be a pick em fight. <laughs> truly, God damn, I, I gotta stop this breakdown because it's it's just so crazy to me that people are betting him this high. But I got Jay Collier, more than likely will be my dog of the night play for this card. And, uh, you know, I'm recording this the, the, literally a week before the fight. So knock on wood that nothing happens with the fights. Uh, nobody gets canceled or gets COVID. But I like Collier here. I think he's going to be massive value at this dog price. So I'm going with Jay Collier to win this fight. Again, late stoppage or uh, a decision victory. Movzarev Lua versus Nate Landwehr. We got minus 550 on one of my top prospects, Movzarev Lua. And plus 425 on Nate the Train Landwehr. So let's start off with Movzar. Um... You guys have been watching me for a while. You guys know that I'm high on Movzar. I even had him as my lock of the night play last time around against Mike Grundy. And uh, that seemed to be the, the the public's favorite dog that night. And I, st I stayed, you know, steady on that play. Uh, and it paid off for me. You know, I mean, Harry first round, we did see Mike Grundy lock up a pretty tight uh, Dars choke. Um, luckily for Movzar, he was able to scramble and get out. Uh, and he started to put his hands together. So there was an argument that he possibly won round one there uh, by, uh, you know, really busting up Mike Grundy with his punches. His boxing looked great. His Muay Thai looked great. Uh, and it really shows that, uh, you know, his time over at Tiger Muay Thai is definitely paying off for him. So that's uh, very positive to see. But he's also now spending time down at ATT. 
which should help him give even more looks or get more looks, which is really great for uh, for his progression as a young fighter. He's only 25, 26 years old. Um, yeah, he's 26. He'll be 27 in February. But uh, he's come a long way. You know, he was an M1 champion, bantamweight champion to be specific. And it's funny because him and Nate Landwehr were champions at the same time. Just Nate at 145. Evloev at 135, and now since Evloev's come over to the UFC, he's decided to just stick at 145 pounds, and he looks great there. You know what I mean? Doesn't have to cut that extra bit of weight. His cardio looks amazing too, which is great. Um, cardio for days. He's been to the five been five rounds a couple time a couple times in his career, um, and uh, you know the cardio is something that I don't really uh, worry too much about when I, when we're talking about Mozart. Now I'm liking the progression that we're seeing with his boxing and his striking, as I believe in his M1 days that was his weaker, you know, one of the weaker traits that he had. Uh, in his M1 days, like I said, he he really did focus on the grappling, the scrambles, the wrestling, um, and he did a really good job, kind of just staying uh, a step ahead of most of his opponents. Um, you know, we're kind of seeing it in the UFC. He had a tough go against Enrique Barzola, but was still able to pull out the victory there. Um, Mike Grundy, you know, that was pretty much him getting it done via his hands and his striking. So that looked really great. But with Nate Landwehr, on the other hand, he's a guy that I'm like super excited about to always watch. The guys must watch, must see TV pretty much every single time. He was that one champion, like I mentioned as well, and he had to deal with a lot of grappling. Luckily for him, he was he was pretty good at getting back to his feet. However, you know his opponents did spend some solid time on top, so uh, he did have that. He was usually fighting back, um, you know, trying to trying to get a finish to usually get his victories, and that's what he did in the M1 scene. Now we did see him put out recently against Herbert Burns back in January. Beautiful knee from the clinch from Herbert Burns. Uh, so people start to question the durability of Nate Landwehr. However, I still believe the guy has a good chin. I just think that was a perfectly placed strike by Herbert Burns with a ton of power behind it as well. Something that we know that Herbert Burns definitely carries. Darren Elkins, that fight was an absolute war. Um, you know, Darren Elkins picked up the first round. The second round definitely went to Nate. But that third round was heavily contested. Uh, if you guys go back to or even go over to um, MMA decisions, you guys will see that 65% of the voters there actually had Darren Elkins winning that third round. However, every single judge had 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 it unanimously for Nate Landwehr 29-28, but I kind of see that too. But Darren Elkins was landing some good, good shots in that third round, snapping Nate Landwehr's head back, and he had some good success in the first round with his hands and even getting Nate down. Now, Nate did a good job of getting back to his feet, but I think if he deals with the similar type of approach from Movzar Evlov, he's going to be in a bunch of trouble. I think that Movzar will be a little bit better with getting to the punch a little bit quicker, more crisp with his shots. Um, his leg kicks are solid as well, too. Um, but I think his ability to mix his whole MMA game together is really going to give Nate Landward trouble. I think he'll be able to get takedowns with relative ease. I think he'll be able to keep Nate down for extended periods of time. But even if this fight does take place on the feet, I think he'll be a little bit more active, uh, landing the cleaner, crisper shots, kind of stopping the, the forward movement of Nate. Um, Nate is a bit uh, cautious himself at times with his striking game too, looking for the right times to kind of explode and move forward. 
Um, I'd say the best shot that I've seen him land, at least in his last fight against Darren Elkins, was that beautiful elbow that just split open Darren Elkins. And he was celebrating it too right after the fact. You know, he's going, whoa, and, and pointing over at Dana and calling Dana's name in the middle of the fight. Fucking absolute nutcase this guy is, but I love watching it. And I'm sure Dana loves watching him too, so I'm hoping that we get to see him stick around even after taking an L here because I do think that uh, Movzar will still go out there and get this get this done. Now, I don't think that he'll get the finish because I don't think he has the power that Burns does, but he is getting better on a fight-to-fight basis. So if he does go out there and knock out Nate Landwehr, I wouldn't be completely surprised because you got to expect, you know, um, progression from a fighter on a fight-to-fight basis. Uh, you know, Nate Landwehr, 32, closer to the best we'll ever see him, whereas Movzar Evlov at 26, he's only getting better from a fight-to-fight basis. Um, but... I would rather go with Movzar to win by decision. I know that prop is minus 135, which makes some sense here. But I think he does, you know, he will do a much better job of mixing in his MMA game to kind of keep Nate uh, guessing. And, you know, if you're having close fights with Darren Elkins, I think that Movzar will definitely be able to blow him out of the water here. And, uh, yeah, I'm not one to really do that whole MMA math type of thing. But that that's just really not a good look for your last fight to be that close. And a bunch of people actually even scoring it the opposite way too. Not not a good look at all. I think Mozart definitely uh, wins this fight. Clearly, uh, maybe a 30-27. But that's definitely the way that I'm going to be going. So once again, I'll go a Movzar Evluev to win this fight via decision. Roman Delidze versus John Allen. We got uh, minus 160 on Roman and plus 140 on John Allen. Since this line is open, it's pretty much stuck around the same uh, line. The fight doesn't go to the decision as a minus 160. Opened up at minus 245. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is a fun fight. So let's start off with John Allen first. Um, he was scheduled to fight at Herman back in September. Unfortunately, he had to pull out. Um, but he did go to, or he won a decision victory against Mike Rodriguez July of 2019. So it's been over a year and a half or close to a year and a half since the last time we've seen him. Um that fight did eventually get changed to a no contest as Allen did eventually pop for um, some sort of uh, supplement or, or PEDs or whatever the fuck it was. But uh, let's talk about his style, though. He, he seems to be a fighter that likes to pretty much take all aspects of MMA into consideration. Um you know, solid kicks, solid uh, uh, strikings, good hands, um, and uh, a good fight IQ to be able to take fights to the ground if that's what he needs to do, just like, or if that's what he needs to do, just like he did against Mike Rodriguez last time around. The Alexandre Silva fight, which was his fight after the contender series where he got choked out by Vinicius Mojera on uh, uh, the Brazilian contender series, I, I, I should say. That was August of 2018, but he did take a fight in Future FC 6 where he uh, knocked out a, a prospect, it seemed, in Alexandre Silva, who was 6-0 at the time. Now he's 6-2, and two. but uh, he did knock him out in the second round, and that was a fight where, you know, it took a little bit of time for his hands to get going, but once they started getting going and started his kicks going too, uh, you know, he seemed to be more of an opportunistic striker more than anything else, and, uh, you know, it paid off for him. Like, he was waiting for his openings. He was hurting Alexandre Silva's uh, legs, his calves, um, and then eventually started getting his punches together and then put together a beautiful combination to eventually put out Silva in that uh, second round. Beautiful, beautiful performance. 
performance there. Then he comes in as a pretty heavy underdog against Mike Rodriguez, as a lot of people thought that Rodriguez was going to be able to keep this fight on the feet and uh, pretty much either put out John Allen or at least outstrike him. However, John Allen had completely different plans. He goes out there, puts together a solid game plan, starting off with leg kicks and then taking the fight to the ground whenever he wanted. Mike Rodriguez had a very, very tough time in terms of getting back to his feet, and that's what really caused him to, to lose that fight and John Allen to come out with a decision victory there. Obviously now in all contest, so he's still technically uh, winless uh, in the UFC, and he hopes to write that ship here against Roman Delodze, uh, Delidze, I should say, uh, who's a very, very tough out. So let's talk about Delidze, who last time around in July knocked out Hadis Ibrahimov with a beautifully placed knee. It actually, uh, it looked like it was supposed to be a kick, but the the brunt of that impact was actually uh, on the, the chin of Hadis Ibrahimov, uh, courtesy of the knee. And then he followed up with a couple uh, ground and pound shots there, uh, which, uh, you know, permanently put away uh, Hadis in that fight. Uh, there was a lengthy layoff for uh, Roman before his UFC debut. He did. Uh, he was scheduled to fight uh, Gadzimir Antigulov, Vinicius Mojera, and even Khadisi Brigimov roughly a month before they actually ended up fighting. Uh, so his last fight before the UFC was December of 2018. So he was coming up on just over a year and a half layoff, but it didn't seem to bug him at all. Um, against Cadiz in that fight. Now, if you guys go back and listen to my breakdown of uh, Roman in that fight leading up to the Cadiz fight, I did pick him to win, but I was a little bit, uh, I was a little bit put off, not put off. I was a little bit distracted by his last couple fights, thinking that this guy was just a, a slugger. You know what I mean? He, uh, from what I saw in his regional fights, he liked to go out there and wait for his shots to to actually go out there and throw big bombs, good counters, good spinning back fists, just as he knocked out the last guy he did before coming to the UFC. But he seemed like a brawler, a slugger, a guy that wants to go to the middle of the cage and try to just knock you out, try to have the bigger balls, pretty much. But I, I dug into him a little bit deeper this time around. It turns out the guy's not too shabby when it comes to the grappling realm either. Uh, he he fought in something called a, the grappling championships. Uh, it, was, it was like combat championships or something like that. And he, I believe he went undefeated and even came up as the champion before that went, uh, you know, that, that league went defunct. But now uh, he did get into MMA in 2016 and he's gone in on a 7-0 and uh, run at this point in time. Uh, the majority of his, of his fights in the uh, beginning of his career, his first three fights he won by first round sub, the longest of those being a minute and 21 seconds. And I thought that was just more so him going out there and fighting guys that just didn't really deserve to be in there. Then he goes out his last next three fights and knocks everybody out. So those are the fights that I really like, uh, you know, focused on more so when I was looking into that Hadis fight. And uh, man, he's a high level jujitsu guy. He's a brown belt uh, in the gi. Uh, yeah, he he has a lot to offer on the ground. That's where I thought uh, coming into this fight with John Allen. That's where Allen might be able to have an advantage. Is okay. He might be a little bit more higher output, and he could go to the takedowns and get this fight to the ground if he really wanted to. But I'm not sure if he really wants to take it there. You know, what I mean, I think Dolidze has a solid uh, jujitsu off of his back. Even when Hadis was able to kind of like trip Roman there, uh, Roman was like inviting him to come into the to to the jujitsu room, and Hadis is like, Nah, I'm good, dude. Let's just keep this on the feet so you can eventually knock me out closer to the ending of the round. Um, but I like him here against John Allen. I, I got to say, I, I you know, his low output is a little bit concerning, but it seems to be 
you know, a dick swinging contest whenever he goes out there and fights. And I expect it to be the same here with John Allen. It seems like Roman is more of a counter striker. So uh, I don't think it would be the output would be too much of an issue here, given that John Allen is a little bit more active, likes to throw more shots and end with leg kicks. So I wouldn't be surprised to see if maybe Roman catches a kick, tries to take this to the ground and start to implement his jujitsu. As we've seen, John Allen tapped in the past to Vinicius Bohea. Uh, not 100% sure if Dalidze and Mohea were to go at it, uh, who would really come out on the winning end when it comes to the jiu-jitsu. But uh, I don't know if John Allen really wants the ground with Dalidze. And now if you're telling me Dalidze throws those bungalows and doesn't really care about takedowns coming his way because he has a high-level jiu-jitsu background... I start to like this guy a little bit more. You know what I mean? I thought initially that there was going to be some value on uh, on John Allen here, but I don't mind that minus 160 on Roman. I think he has a solid shot of either knocking out or, or submitting John Allen here. I think he's I think he's very, very live uh, for one of those. And uh, I'd be interested to see what the submission prop looks like for Delizia here. Uh, so uh, like the, from last weekend, we had Miguel Baez via submission at plus 900. But I think that had a lot to do with him not having a submission victory on his record to date. Delize has three. So, you know, that's just about half of his wins. Just under half of his wins have come by submission. So maybe the bookmakers are a little bit more privy to his uh, jiu-jitsu background. But uh, Baeza, you know, black belt, yet they continuously overlooked it, thinking that he wasn't going to be able to snatch it up. But here against uh, with Delize and uh, Allen, I expect it to take place on the feet. I expect Delize to land the bigger shots. Um, and another positive for Delize, uh, in my opinion. So in that fight against uh, Hadis, they had said that uh, he opened up his own gym because he wasn't the most happy with uh, the training that he was getting. Uh, so that was you know going well for him over in Ukraine. But uh, in August, if you guys look at his IG, in August, he said, uh, he actually moved everything down to uh, Vegas. Now, I'm not sure what's going on with his gym back home in uh, Ukraine. But since August, the end of August, he's been training at Extreme Couture, getting some good reads, getting some solid time in with uh, other high-level uh, you know, sparring partners and uh, even UFC fighters as well. Uh, so I think that's a good move for him to come over here and get more looks than he probably would have over there in Ukraine. So he's making the changes that are necessary. Uh, he's doing what he needs to, to to improve his game. And I, you know, my my potential for this guy is starting to to grow a little bit higher than it originally had. So I'll go at Roman Delizze to win this fight probably by by KO or, or sub. I'm just not sure which one exactly. But uh, I think he has a high, a high ceiling for sure. Uh, I think people are going to be intimidated by striking uh, the power that he has, uh, and then they're going to be a little bit put off in terms of the jujitsu that's going to be coming their way too. So uh, yeah, I think this kid's a uh, not this kid. He's he's uh, how old is he? Let me just get that out of the way. He's thirty two years old, so he's got to get it going now. You know, what I mean, this is he's in his prime at least age wise. Uh, doesn't have a lot of fight miles on him too, so I'm sure his durability is there. But yeah, he's really got to get going now. And luckily for him, light heavyweight, you know, not the most booming division at the time. You know, I mean, we do have our top five guys that are all trying to battle it out right now. But he could find himself within that top 10 probably by middle of next year uh, if he's able to start stringing some wins together. So uh, I'll go with Ruman Delize, first or second round KO or submission. But uh, I, I really like this guy.
Montana De La Rosa versus Tyler Santos. We got minus 210 on Tyler Santos and we got plus 175 for the short notice Montana De La Rosa. So I say short notice because Tyler Santos was scheduled to fight Marina Moroz. Moroz pulls out, uh, not 100% sure exactly why, but in steps Montana De La Rosa quickly, uh, relatively quickly after her loss to Viviani Rujo back in September. So she's taken exactly three months off and now she's right back into this, taking the fight on roughly about a week and a half notice um i'm not sure how much that's going to play into this according to her ig it seemed like she was you know putting in the work she was getting uh she was doing what she needed to do to stay in shape obviously that makes sense as to you know her taking this fight um it is at flyweight which is what it was uh the santos fight was scheduled for um uh before obviously this whole change here but let's let's get into the actual uh to the to the fight here so with tyler santos we saw her come up flat against mara romero barella uh where she lost a split decision where she pretty much got you know one taken down and then two kind of just controlled up against the cage she did have a strong third round but it was just too little too late and barella did end up getting the uh, decision victory there then afterwards we did see i think the the actual uh tyler santos against molly mccann and uh, i was kind of surprised that a lot of people were duped into betting molly in that spot uh, i believe we did i did end up betting on tyler santos i did get her around that plus 150-ish range very very happy to hit that spot i was very very surprised at the amount of love that molly was getting a lot of recency bias baked into a lot of these lines in my opinion and it's affecting a lot of people too like you can't just look at their last performance you gotta you know dial it back a little bit further you gotta take x factors into consideration i think that there was a lot going into tyler santos against uh barella uh now here against uh molly mccann she did a very good job of you know staying on the feet um you know, battering Molly McCann from the outside and even taking the fight to the ground if she needed to and clinching, clinching up and showing that she's the much stronger fighter than Molly McCann. So a uh, great performance from Tyler Santos last time around. Uh, I, I think a lot of people going into that Barilla fight were expecting her to go out there and have a, a similar performance as she did in the Contender Series when she beat Estefani Almeida in a fight where she had her hurt on multiple occasions but just wasn't able to put her away. Now with this De La Rosa fight, it's it's interesting because you guys know me. I, I've bet on De La Rosa a couple times in the past, and she's you know she's won for me, she's lost for me, um, and I keep saying, okay, this is the last time I'm going to bet on her, uh, considering that she didn't have that great of a performance against Viviani Arujo. But the difference here between Arujo and Santos is I believe that Arujo is just a little bit more physical and and has a little bit more fast twitch muscle and uh, obviously physically looks in much, much better shape than Tyler Santos. Not taking anything away from Santos, but Arujo is just sculpted out of granite, it looks like. But any time that there was an instance where uh, uh, De La Rosa kind of pinned her up against the cage or even tried going for any type of takedown, we did not see Arujo, you know, stand still for one second, not even a millisecond. She was, uh, you know shrimping every single time she was uh you know moving from side to side trying to get out of these uh positions you know getting rid of the body locks um you know she was very very strong in those positions and that's what allowed her to really you know keep the fight at distance and really get her shots off and really make De La Rosa kind of hurt from the outside you know we saw De La Rosa kind of accept the fact that she wasn't able to get this fight to the ground and we saw her kind of bite down on her mouthpiece a little bit more and start to throw more punches which will lead a lot of people to believe that she's believing in her striking a little bit more I've heard that take from a couple of different people at this point but I don't I don't really believe that I think it's more so it's uh, De La Rosa accepting the fact that she wasn't getting that fight to the ground you know Arujo very very strong uh a ton of fast twitch muscle uh you know the 
the lack of settling up against the cage really allowed her to get out of those bad positions. Um, and, you know, she had the gas tank to do it. Now, what Tyler Santos, I'm seeing kind of the opposite. Like, she's willing to engage in these clinch battles and she's willing to engage in, uh, you know, these grappling exchanges. And I think that's where it might go wrong for her. You know, we did see Barella obviously have some success. And I think uh, De La Rosa is definitely the best grappler she's had to deal with up until this point. You know, I don't think Molly McCann really has much on De La Rosa when it comes to the grappling. Um, you know, Molly had a, a little bit of a su successful run upsetting a couple fighters and everybody thinking that she's like a d1 wrestler at this point in time and thinking that there she was going to get tyler santos down time and time again like she just kept going for a, a single leg and and not really the most uh power or or conviction behind it either which really uh ended up you know kind of f falling back on her on her whereas tyler santos was able to like reverse those positions eventually get her down and do some good damage from on top I think we'll see De La Rosa successful in those situations. I think if she's able to successfully push Santos up against the cage, she will get those takedowns and she will be able to kind of push Tyler up against the cage and really wear on her there. You know, Montella De La Rosa, 5'7", 68 inch reach. Tyler Santos, 5'6", 66 inch reach. Or sorry, 68 inch reach. We did see uh, Marlon McCann deal with the height advantage and the, 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 the size advantage of Tyler Santos, which is definitely in her in her favor. I don't think that's going to be the thing here. Del Rosa has a, you know, a, a wrestling background from wrestling in our high school and college, I believe, up until the point that she ended up having a kid. But, um, yeah, I, th I think she's the she's going to be the toughest grappler that Santos has faced. And if we saw Mara go out there and have some success, uh, albeit I, I believe there were some uh, conditions going into that fight for Talo, which is why she didn't really perform to the best of her ability. But I don't think that Santos has the type of striking that Arujo has. Like, San don't get me wrong, Talo's striking is great. I think it's I think it's good. I think it's uh, you know definitely possible in this division. But I don't think it's to the point where it's going to kind of uh, demoralize De La Rosa from pushing this fight up against the cage, getting her hands on Tyler and possibly dragging this fight to the ground. I think it's the willingness of Tyler to engage in those clinch situations and not really, you know, um, you know, just try to shrimp her way out of those positions like she did against uh, Molly McCann or even Barella, I think that's where it's going to kind of get a little bit harder for De La Rosa. Now, I, we did see something come out from James Lynch earlier today um, saying that uh, we didn't see De La Rosa get to go over to uh, Team Elevation like she did before her last camp and get in some time there. But, you know, you got to take into consideration that this is somewhat short notice. So how would she have known to go out there? Like, it costs money to do that. I believe she lives in New Mexico with, uh, obviously, Mark De La Rosa, her husband and her kid. But... You know, it costs money to go out to to Denver and and rent a place and pay for the training and all that type of stuff. So I I think that that's a little bit of a concern. And obviously the short notice, like what 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 really is she going to get out of going to Team Elevation for like three or four days and then having to fly to Vegas from there and quarantining and doing all that type of shit. So yeah, she is taking some uh, some things from. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember uh, Elliot Marshall. Uh, she, she's taking notes and, and lessons from him through Zoom. And I don't think that's something that people should look too hard into. Again, it's a short notice fight. But I think the talents and the skills that De La Rosa brings into this fight against Santos definitely makes her a live uh, underdog at that plus 175 range. You can get her at plus 180 at a couple spots too. So I do like her at that price. I don't mind that at all. I, I think this is a solid spot for her. 
Like going into this, I thought I was going to be backing Santos, but once you really start to break down the tape and see those situations that De La Rosa could possibly get Santos into, and seeing how Santos reacts in those in those situations, I, I lead De La Rosa. Now we might see Santos come out here and and show what Viviani Arujo did, which is you know anytime the clinch or anything was in uh, initiated, she just absolutely gets the hell out of dodge. You know what I mean? She she does everything in her power to just get out of those situations and then land a couple good strikes on De La Rosa to continue to demoralize her. But I I just don't see it. Like I feel like if we were going to see it, we would have seen it in the Molly McCann fight. But she trusted in herself and she did. She was successful in reversing positions and getting Molly down. But I think she's going to have a harder time doing that against, uh, in my opinion, the best grappler that she's faced to date in Mar- Montana De La Rosa. So I'm going with De La Rosa. I think she has a solid shot of getting this fight down repeatedly, having some good success from on top uh, and, and go, taking home... Um, a decision victory so i'll go with montana uh to win this fight by decision i think she's a very very live underdog here at plus 175 plus 180 possibly even a better line if uh closer to fight week i'm not 100 sure yet we're recording this on the thursday of the fight week prior to the the current fight week um so yeah I, i'll go with montana to win this fight via decision Oh, Vince St. Prue versus Jamal Hill. We got minus 165 on the up-and-comer Jamal Hill and plus 145 on the vet OSP. Let's start off with OSP and let's start off with the cash that I got last time around when he went out there and knocked out Alonzo Menafield. Uh, four minutes into that second round beautiful performance by him in terms of staying away from the power shots of the the devastator uh, Alonzo Menafield who just likes to go out there and just knock people's heads off and a lot of people were in agreement that uh, you know OSP still has a you know a, a a suspect chin uh, and Menafield will be able to, you know, will be prime in terms of finding that chin and putting him out. Um, he was a plus 120 dog. I believe that's roughly around the price that I got him at. And I was more than happy to hit that bet. You know, uh, he did a good job of using his kicks to maintain the distance and slowly suck away the cardio of Alonzo Menafield as he continued to throw at air. And then eventually he started getting his punches into the game. Uh, as soon as Alonzo's punches started to, re- you know, kind of decline in the power and we saw Menafield uh, you know, really start to suck wind. Uh, there was a moment in time where we saw OSP land 15 to 16 consecutive strikes without Alonzo Menafield even attempting one. Um, we saw OSP on the on his on his back foot for pretty much the entire fight, but he did a really good job from fighting from that stance as he's knocked out a bunch of guys kind of moving backwards, Alonzo Menafield and even Shogun Hua, if you guys remember that one from several years ago. So I like what we see from OSP, but I do think that his age is going to start catching up to him. He's 37 years old, which is crazy, Um, but he has fought for a title in the past. He's made it to the pinnacle of the sport, but he's slowly starting to fade away. And he's doing a good job of kind of, uh, you know, weeding out the the prospects that are on the up and up. You know, Alonzo Menafield obviously being one of them. And now Jamal Hill uh, is somebody that he's looking to turn away as well. So you guys kind of, if you guys have been following me for a while, you guys know that I haven't really been the biggest Jamal Hill fan. Um, I believe I've uh, faded him in both of his last two fights as I just wasn't the biggest fan of, you know, his, his chin high in the air type of style, kind of throwing a little bit wild at times uh but i gotta say the kid is slowly starting to win me over and i feel like this is almost a nightmare matchup for osp 
because this is a completely different style than what he saw against uh, Alonzo Menafield. You know, we know Menafield, he likes to land that big strike. He mainly does the majority of his damage with his hands, with his hooks, um, with his overhand right. Whereas Jamal Hill is a little bit more diverse and has a lot more vi variety with the type of strikes that he likes to throw from knees to kicks to, you know, similar kicks to what OSP throws. Um, and he's a big dude himself too. 6'4", 79-inch reach, and we know that OSP is 6'3", with the 80-inch reach. Wow, he's actually an inch taller than OSP as well, too, so that should definitely play into this fight. Um, I think when um, OSP is the one kind of being hunted uh, by a, a fighter that is able to throw a variety of strikes the way that Jamal Hill is, uh, I think it kind of starts to break him and that cardio really starts to to fuck with him. And I think that's, what's, that, that's what we're going to see here with Jamal Hill as he'll probably be the one with the moving forward, landing the big shots, uh, you know, landing the variety of shots too. Um, my, my concern here is if this fight does end up getting to the ground. I feel like OSP will have a slight advantage there, but I'm not 100% sure where Jamal Hill truly is with his jiu-jitsu and where his ground game is at. I feel like he's improving on a fight-to-fight -fight basis, and he's still quite young. He's 29 years old, you know, at least young in his fight years. He's only 8-0. and He's had 8 fights. He turned pro in 2017, and within 3 years, uh, you know, just over 3 years, he's managed to accrue an 8-0 and record, which is very, very impressive. He has a ton of finishes or a handful of finishes on his record too but I feel like his style of you know kind of attacking the way that he does um, will definitely help him out in this fight against OSP again I feel like his chin up style is still going to be a bit of concern and again OSP does very well in terms of fighting off of his back foot so Hill is going to have to be very very uh, tuned in and making sure that he kind of sees the counters that are coming his way from OSP I think if, he, if he's able to you know start out on the front foot and really start pushing the pace, not really pushing the pace, but at least pushing the fight to OSP from the get-go, he should be able to start accumulating enough damage to really get OSP to start sucking some wind and, uh, you know, really taking the pop off of his shots too. I hope that we, we see Hill manage to keep this fight on the feet as I feel like that's where he'll be strongest. And I could absolutely see Hill absolutely get a finish here over OSP as well. I think he can hurt him to the body just as he did Klitz and Abreu. Um, again, um, the kid's growing on me. And I never thought I'd really say that, but, you know, he's showing time and time again that he can show up. Uh, he can avoid the big strikes of his opponents. He can get away with having his chin up in the air. But him slightly being bigger than OSP here brings a very interesting aspect, as OSP is normally the bigger guy going into his fights. Um, I think the last fight he was a smaller guy was the Ben Rothwell fight, and we saw him lose that via split decision. Dominic Reyes, I believe, is bigger than him, and he lost that fight. Um, yeah. Not often do you see him going out there and beating guys bigger than him. So that's something to to keep in mind here. So yeah, I, I do like Jamal Hill. I think he gets it done probably first or second round. I could see him definitely putting it on OSP and getting that dub. Uh, and I don't mind him at that minus 165 range. I think the, the line is slowly getting better on him too. Um, yeah, it, it is getting better on him. He was he opened at minus 195. Now we're seeing some love come back on OSP. And I think this might be the, the spot to jump off the OSP train. You know, it was great casting on him against uh, Alonzo Menafield, who was a little bit more of a one-dimensional striker, whereas Jamal Hill is going to bring a lot more to the game that could potentially, you know, stunt the, the return or the resurgence of OSP. So I'm going with Jamal Hill. I think he gets it done first or second round. I'm starting to like this kid. He's winning me over. So congrats, Jamal Hill.
you, you've won a fan over your last couple of performances. So hopefully he can go out there and get the job done against this vet and add a very, very good name to his record. So this should definitely really help him in his career, uh, the trajectory of his career, um, and possibly put him in that top 10 discussion of the light heavyweight realm. So once again, I'll go with Jamal Hill to win this fight via first or second round KO. Time for the main event. We got Jack the Joker Hermanson versus Marvin Vittori. And the lines just recently opened up. We got minus 135 for Vittori and plus 105 for Jack Hermanson. And uh, Hermanson's had to deal with a couple pullouts at this point in time. And it's unfortunate uh, due to, you know, it being such a big stage, uh, having the main event slot here uh, and trying to build off that Kelvin Gastelum win uh, from back in July. Now, he was originally scheduled to fight Darren Hill. That fight would have been great for him to at least, you know, get another name under his belt. Then in stops Kevin Holland, who, in my opinion, kind of deserved the push. You know what I mean? He's, he got robbed a bunch of times this year in terms of having a top name opponent or a top ranked opponent and then pulling out and him having to take short notice opponents uh, that he was able to go style on pretty quickly. Uh, and now in steps Marvin Vittori, who, in my opinion, just like Kevin Holland, deserves a bit of a push as well, too. So good for him for being able to take this fight, uh, his first headlining fight, uh, and and a, and a stiff test here against uh, Jack Hermanson. And I find the, the odds to be a little bit weird that, uh, you know, people are, seem to be so heavily in favor of Marvin Vittori here. So let's start off with Jack Hermanson as to why I believe uh, he should be the favorite. So uh, I like his style in terms of his wrestling heavy style, Greco-Roman background, I believe it is. Uh, very strong and weird frame for this division too. He's 6'1 with a 77 and a half inch reach. Marvin Vittori is six foot with a 74 inch reach. But uh, the Joker is just so lanky and, and awkward. And he has this weird strength about him where he's not like the most ripped or shredded guy kind of like uh, Marvin Vittori is. But he's like, he has this weird like lanky strength, this lanky uh, muscle, you know what I mean. So uh, he's able to to get these trips and get these takedowns and just be heavy from on top. You know, landing good shots from on top or searching for uh, submissions. Uh, and even on the feet, he's not horrible. You know what I mean. He doesn't really throw in combinations too often. Um, most of his shots are are kind of unorthodox strikes, whether they're spinning uh, back kicks or you know just a, a teep to the front leg or something like that. He likes to be a little bit unorthodox with his approach. I think what he's looking more often than not is for the uh, the takedown. Like I think that he's looking for a way to um, continuously keep moving, uh, keep his opponent guessing, and then when they're least expecting, kind of close that distance and go for a double leg or even a trip or even a throw of some sort. The guy's very well-rounded in my opinion. A lot of people are shitting on him as of late. I'm not under 100% certain as to why. Uh, you know, he did... So he's lost three times in the UFC now. The first time to Cesar Fajera way back in November of 2016. Then Thiago Santos, where he got put out right at the end of the round. That was July. Uh, sorry, that was October of 2017. And then most recently, he got knocked out by Jared Cannonier in September of 2019. He did eventually come back and obviously beat Calvin Gastelum just about uh, 10 months after that. He was scheduled to fight Chris Weidman uh, in in may uh but obviously that got pushed back due to covid but that would have probably been an easy one for him to get as well um you know the kevin gaston fight was interesting because it only lasted a minute and 18 seconds we didn't see too much in terms of what uh, hermanson had uh you know just as he you know he's normally able to go out there and show um he went for a, 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 I believe it was a body lock takedown, and Gaslam did a really good job 
of uh, kind of reversing it with the lateral drop. He was eventually able to get the top position, but Jack did a good job of continuously scrambling from the bottom, attacking heel hooks and leg locks, and eventually did get the heel hook uh, on Kelvin Gaslam, who just didn't seem that urgent, which was very, very weird. It seemed like he was um, he was kind of content in thinking that no way that this guy's going to catch me with a heel hook, and before you know it, Hermanson has this weird strength where he's just able to generate this torque and that really threw off uh Kevin Gaslam in that situation so very unfortunate loss for Kevin Gaslam there but another uh you know confidence booster for Jack Hermanson here especially going into this fight against Vittori who seems to be streaking himself as well uh he's on a three fight winning streak the only the, the fight that he did end up losing was to Israel Adesanya before that but since then he's beaten Cesar Fajera which was July of 20, 2019 beat him by decision then he beats Andrew Sanchez by decision in October roughly about three months later and then he just uh finished uh Carl Roberson in June of this year that one had a ton of uh heat behind it due to the constant pullouts from Carl Robertson's part and then obviously a bunch of other uh unfortunate uh issues that Roberson had to deal with there but you know we saw a decent uh uh, striking from Vittori and then eventually he wanted to take the fight to the ground where he felt like he had a uh, you know a better chance of getting it done Robertson got close to locking up a submission there but Vittori did a good job of spinning out and uh, yeah he showed some good dominance on the ground eventually uh, capturing that rear naked choke which was uh, you know a really good submission for him to, to, to capture in that spot but this is a weird one against Jack Hermanson let me just take a quick sip of water because my throat is fucking with me real bad right now. <clears throat> All right, that was weird. Either way, okay. So uh, the, the way these guys match up, I feel like uh, the the striking style of Hermanson, even though he doesn't really throw in combinations, which is kind of Vittori's, uh, you know, uh, his strength or his advantage that he has here. I think he's going to have the advantage on the feet, uh, you know, landing the more output and. And just, uh, you know, throwing a little bit more variety of combinations. Whereas Jack Hermanson is going to try to be a little bit more unorthodox with his approach. But I truly think that his way to get this, uh, to get his hand raised in this fight is going to be by taking this fight to the ground. I think he, he, we have seen Vittori taken down before. He's done a good job of getting back to his feet. But I feel like Hermanson has a really good top pressure and top game that he should be able to keep Vittori down for you know extended, period time, extended periods of time and do some solid work from on top. Uh, this is the first time Vittori is going to be scheduled to fight for fight for five rounds. And I feel like that's uh, an advantage for Jack Hermanson, who, if you guys remember, he took that fight against... Um, Jacare Souza on relatively short notice. Souza was supposed to fight Yoel Romero that night. In steps Jack Hermanson again on relatively short notice. He did beat David Branch just about a month before that, just under a month before that. And he steps in to fight Jacare Souza in a five round fight and beats him in a five round fight too, very decisively as well. You know, continuously taking Souza down, staying out of submissions, but landing good, good uh, work from on top. And that's the kind of approach I think he'll take here against Vittori. Now, I think he'll be more successful the the later this fight goes. So obviously it's going to be a little bit more difficult to, one, get Vittori down early, and two, keep him down, as I feel like Vittori does a good job of getting back to his feet. But again, this is the first time he's dealing with somebody that has the type of top pressure, uh, ground and pound that uh, Jack Hermanson does. And that, you know, that should bring a very interesting factor or or, or um, caveat to this fight. You know what I mean? I, I just like Jack here. I'm not sure what it is. Now, I'm not 
confident to the extent of actually wanting to go out there and bet him. But if the line did continue to widen and we possibly got uh, Jack Manson around plus 150 or so, that would make me a little bit more interested here. I'm not 100% certain on or sold on the fact that Hermanson would get the finish here either. So maybe if uh, you want to take the poke on Hermanson to win by decision, which is uh, plus 525. Ooh, that is a little absurd in my opinion. That might be worth a little bit of a poke as I believe that's his way to to win this. Or him to win inside the distance is plus 160. But Vittori is durable for sure. That's something that we've seen in pretty much all of his fights, even uh, Adesanya just picking him apart from the outside, wasn't able to get him out of there. Uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. not able to get him out of there either. And then his only other loss was against a guy named Bill Beaumont, who wasn't able to get him out of there either. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to come down to the takedowns of Hermanson. Uh, possible sub game as well, too, from Hermanson. Um, but it depends on how long the takedown defense of Vittori truly holds up and uh, if he's able to get Hermanson out of there with punches. Now, I'm not sold that we'll see uh, Vittori actually get a KO here. He hasn't really knocked out anybody since uh, his his second last fight before coming to the UFC, which was against Jack Mason, uh, finished him with a knee. But uh, yeah, not a notorious finisher as Vittori. So I'm intrigued to see how he deals with 25 minutes, especially taking this fight on short notice. That's a... That's an issue here. Now, Hermanson obviously took that fight against Jacare on short notice and then was able to go all 25 minutes. Is Vittori going to be able to do the same? I don't know. He should be able to, but uh, I think that Hermanson's going to have the edge there. So I'm going with Hermanson here to win by decision. I, again, I think he'll be successful in getting this fight to the ground, uh, You know, doing a, doing good work from on top. Uh, I just don't think that Vittori's really faced anybody that can give him that type of trouble uh, with that type of ground and pound and that type of strength uh, that Jack Hermanson has. And I think a lot of people are overlooking Hermanson in this situation due to the you know, seemingly meteoric rise and love of a Tory since his fight with Andrew Sanchez. Everybody seems to be all over this guy. And obviously he goes out there and beats the two guys that he's supposed to. But I got to say, this is as tough as opponent to date since the Israel out of Adesanya fight. So I think people need to pump their brakes a bit on Vittori. So once again, I'll go with Jack Hermanson to win this fight with, uh, you know, ground and pound uh, with uh, w with his wrestling. But I ultimately think that he takes home a decision victory. Uh, so yeah, I'll go with Jack Manson via decision. And those are the breakdowns. I appreciate you guys checking out the podcast. As always, if you haven't already, make sure you hit the subscribe. Make sure you hit the like. Drop a comment regarding if you disagree with any of my picks. I'd be happy to debate you guys with them. Um, I'll see you guys on Thursday for the Propping You Up stream. 8 p.m. Eastern, me and Cody Saftik will go through all the best props for every single fight on the card. And then Friday, we do the final weigh-in stream on the Odds uh, channel. I'll see you guys at 9 p.m. Eastern on that day. And uh, yeah, hit up the Patreon, please. Hit up the Patreon. I already got my Lock of the Night play ready to go. I'm recording this on Sunday night, dropping the podcast every Monday morning for you guys, or as close to Monday morning as I can get. Um, but yeah, I'll see you guys then. Uh, thanks for watching the episode. Hit like, hit subscribe, do all that shit. I'll see you guys next week for the next episode. Good luck on your best this weekend. And uh, yeah, see you guys Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for the Fight Day stream. I don't want to end this episode, if you guys can tell. But either way, good luck on your best this weekend. I'll see you guys next time.